I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the USS Hamlet's father's ghost requesting entry into Uranian orbit and the Uranian satellite system. We have decelerated and seek clearance to titanium. Greetings, USS Hamlet's father's ghost. This is Mustard Seed. Can you state the purpose of your visit? Roger that, Mustard Seed. I have 250 Shakespeare enthusiasts on board just waking up for a tour of the Uranian moons. Our visit to the Royal Automated Uranium Theater on Titania should be registered in the log. Alright, roger that. USS HFG, I can confirm your reservation now, and docking credentials are good to go. Wish your passengers a pleasant and safe visit to the Uranian satellite system. The next automated thespianoid performance will be, let's see... Ooh, Edward III. Well, better luck next time. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on the planet Uranus and its moons. Now, in part one, we focused mainly on the planet itself. This time, we're going to start getting more into the moons. Maybe we'll do all of the moons this time. I think <laughs> last time we promised it would happen. We'll see whether we can fit it all into one episode. But uh, I, I had a few more core planet digressions burning a hole in my pocket that I wanted to mention before we fly off to the satellites. Are you okay with that, Rob? Let's do it. So first of all, I was wondering, what's the density of Uranus? Uh, and it turns out that Uranus is the second least dense planet in the solar system at 1.27 grams per cubic centimeter. Uh, the only planet less dense is actually Saturn, the second largest planet in the solar system. Uh, you might wonder which planet is the densest, baby. That's Earth. That's Earth. We are at 5.51 grams per cubic centimeter. So we are the density king. Uh, but one of the real things I wanted to return to was a question of materials, because in the last episode, we uh, mentioned just giving sort of an overview of the, the, the basics of the planet, that 
most of the mass of Uranus is thought to be a hot, dense fluid of ices, uh, probably surrounding a rocky core of some sort. And though it's, it might be kind of strange to hear like hot, dense fluid of ices that almost kind of doesn't make sense based on our definition of ice. And it's true that a lot of this ice is going to be different than the kind of ice we know. So I was reading more about this in an article by a planetary atmosphere scientist named Amy Simon, who is a senior researcher at NASA Goddard. And uh, this was written for the magazine of the Planetary Society. The article was called The Realm of the Ice Giants. And one of the questions Simon addresses in this article is why are the planets Uranus and Neptune called ice giants as opposed to regular gas giants? It's because compared to regular gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus and Neptune are composed of a higher proportion of ice-forming molecules like water and methane, though much of that so-called ice is in a phase unfamiliar to us on the surface of Earth. Simon writes, quote, ice giants are mostly water, probably in the form of a supercritical fluid. The visible clouds likely consist of ice crystals with different compositions. So regarding supercritical fluid, a supercritical fluid doesn't behave exactly like a liquid gas or a solid. It's, a, it's an emergent state of matter occurring at temperatures and pressures beyond what is known as the critical point for each substance. Uh, and Simon has a, a very good paragraph clarifying the planetary science use of the term ice, which could help clear up any confusion there. She says that on, on Earth, we usually use the term ice to refer to just water, H2O, when it is frozen solid. But planetary astronomers use the word ice to refer to any condensable molecule in its solid form. She writes, quote, these tend to be highly reflective form clouds and, unlike minerals, can readily change between liquid, solid, and gas states at relatively low temperatures. So we're mainly familiar with water ice on the surface of Earth, but throughout space there are lots of ices. There's methane, ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, and phosphine, pH3. Uh, and these are all condensable molecules and could all freeze in the atmosphere of Uranus and Neptune also, for that matter. And Simon writes that most of the clouds we see in the atmospheres of these ice giants are clouds of methane ice crystals or hydrogen sulfide ice. So there's probably weird supercritical fluids down below and then an atmosphere above. The atmosphere uh, in its gas contents is mostly hydrogen and helium, but that atmosphere is probably full of traces of different kinds of ice, including not just H2O, but things like ammonia and methane. And speaking of methane, uh, as we mentioned last time, the blue color of both Neptune and Uranus appears to come from the presence of methane in their atmospheres, which absorbs the uh, red wavelengths of light from the sun and reflects only the blue spectrum. But uh, the question is, why is Uranus a paler shade of blue than Neptune? If you look at Neptune, it's often kind of a royal blue, whereas in true color, uh, Uranus appears kind of a kind of a gray-green blue. Simon writes that this is, quote, either because Uranus has more haze, so more kind of a cloudy outer shell, uh, and but she goes on, or because Neptune's atmosphere has another unidentified constituent 
that absorbs longer wavelength light even more strongly. And of course, longer wavelength light would be uh, more redshifted toward the red end of the visible spectrum. Okay, so that's uh, ice, the atmosphere, the makeup of the planet. But there's one more thing you may have seen headlines about regarding Uranus and Neptune that uh, if you have seen these headlines, I'm sure you're wondering about it. And that is the claim that some experts have argued that it likely rains diamonds on Uranus and Neptune. And from what I can tell, this is true. Now, this is obviously something we, we haven't been able to detect directly with probes or anything, so nobody can sense this happening. Instead, it's based on what we do know about the planets and argue and sort of extrapolating logically from those starting facts. So how does the logic go? Well, I was reading about this in an article for Space.com by the uh, SUNY Stony Brook astrophysicist Paul M. Sutter, and in this article, Sutter explains that we know from mathematical models that the inner mantles of ice giants probably have temperatures of about 7,000 kelvins or over 6,700 Celsius and pressure about 6 million times the atmospheric pressure on the surface of Earth. Meanwhile, higher up in the mantle, things are cooler, about 2,000 kelvins and only 200,000 times Earth's atmospheric pressure. And we know that water, ammonia, and methane are present within that mantle. So what happens to those substances in those conditions? Well, uh, these conditions of temperature and pressure would tend to tear apart molecules of methane. Methane is CH4, carbon and hydrogen. Uh, and when those molecules get torn apart, we are left with free carbon. Free carbon tends to link together with other free carbon to form long chains of carbon. What happens to long chains of pure carbon under high pressure? that gets pressed into a diamond. These diamonds would tend to then drop down to lower in the mantle where high temperatures vaporize them and then they float back up into the upper mantle and then the cycle repeats. So you're left with diamond rain. Sounds like the name of a great alternate universe collaborative sci-fi movie musical between Prince and David Bowie. Wish I could have seen it, but it does appear to be very likely a physical reality on Uranus and Neptune as well. So you're saying that all we have to do is jet out to Uranus, <laughs> dip down into the atmosphere of Uranus, scoop up some diamonds, then get back to Earth and we're set for life. I, I've always said when I look up at the stars at night, what I see is profit. <laughs> okay, but one more digression before we get to the moons. Um, since part one, we actually got a really great bit of listener mail from Joe, not me, but a different Joe who listens to the show, who brought to our attention some really awesome photos of Uranus recently captured by the James Webb Space Telescope. Joe writes, quote, I've long awaited with tremulous anticipation the resumption of your oral journey to the heliopause and was thrilled to see the recumbent Sky King Uranus on my podcast feed. Your choice was timely indeed, as the James Webb Space Telescope just last month released some spectacular visuals of Uranus. These images boast greater clarity than the Hubble's effort, especially of the planet's rings. I love living under a sky that will never run out of extraordinary things to look at and talk about, and I appreciate when you cast your gaze upward from time to time, Joe. 
Well, thank you, Joe, because I had not seen these. I, I looked them up, and this this is fantastic. So this uh, I saw these in, within the context of a NASA press release from April 6th, 2023, that Joe shared with us. Uh, Rob, I pasted these two photos here in the outline. One is just zoomed in on the planet from the uh, more zoomed-out second one. I say, from my perspective, these images are gorgeous. They they fill mm-hmm. one with awe at the picture of this frosty dark recess where the blue god lives. And this might sound a little bit weird, but I actually mean this in the best possible way. Somehow, in these images, Uranus looks more like an optical artifact than a physical object, as if the planet were like a glint or a lens flare. Uh, And to explain what I mean, so the planet is pictured on its side because, of course, that's how it is. We're we're not seeing the rings laterally from the side crossing over and behind the planet like we do in most photos of Saturn. Instead, we're seeing the rings encircling the planet in an egg shape because we're looking roughly down toward the North Pole, um, which faces sideways. And uh, in this particular photo, uh, though this is not exactly true color, The planet is pale blue with a white cap, and the rings sort of fade outward to inward from a screaming fluorescent white to a dim blue-gray as they sink toward the planet's atmosphere. And the sunlight seems blinding in these images because we actually see it gleaming off the edge of the planet, which is even weirder because, as I said, the disk of Uranus facing us looks like a glint or a gleam itself. And in the more zoomed out of these two photos, we can see the the blue dots of the larger moons uh, surrounding it, also sending out these sort of shafts of reflected light in these hexagonal crisscrosses out into space. Yeah, these, these images are gorgeous. It makes it look like Uranus is a planet designed by um, Japanese illustrator Hajime Soriyama. Uh, who's, of course, uh, I think he, he worked on the design for the original um, Sony um, AIBO uh, robot, hmm. uh, but but also mostly known for um, uh, robot pinup, like really shiny, silvery uh, robot pinup models. Um, this, this artist is on my mind because the movie we're watching Friday for Weird House Cinema, this artist is credited like deep down in the credits because there's a character in the movie that has some of this art up on his workstation. Oh, that's funny. Uh, but, but this kind of, but there's a certain, uh, aside from like the, uh, the, the female robot bodies in his art, there is this kind of like glimmering, like silvery perfection to things. And that's what, that's what I kind of get from this image of Uranus. And if you're into planets, like, I mean, put it on a calendar. It looks, it looks nice. It is beautiful. And I will say the blue in this photo, as I uh, alluded to, is not exactly true color from the visible spectrum. I think it's approximate. So the image is from the web's near-infrared camera combining data from uh, two filters. According to the press release, it was 1.4 and 3.0 microns. And then the article explains these are coded out to blue and orange, respectively. Uh, now, I mentioned the the white cap that we see on Uranus in this uh, photo. The article explains that this is known as the polar cap, and it seems to manifest when the pole of the planet goes into direct sunlight during its long polar summer, which, again, um, as we talked about last time, lasts many Earth years at a time. 
And then the cap seems to disappear in the fall when it starts to turn away from the sun. As far as I could find, we aren't sure exactly what causes this, or maybe if somebody knows, I just didn't dig that up. But uh, so regarding the beautiful rings in the picture, Uranus has 13 known rings, and you can see 11 of them in this photo, though some of them are so bright that they bleed together in the image. There are nine major rings, and then there are two kind of faint, dusty rings that were discovered during the approach of Voyager 2 in 1986. But speaking of those rings and moons, rings and moons uh, sometimes have an interesting origin story. So I was wondering, where do experts generally think they came from in the case of Uranus? Going back to that Planetary Society article by Amy Simon, Simon writes that the medium-sized moons of Uranus probably formed in place at the same time or after whatever event it was that left Uranus tilted on its side. And as we talked about last time, it seems likely that Uranus was probably knocked on its side and left colder than all the other planets because of an impact with a large object, maybe like an Earth-sized planet, billions of years ago. And so what we're left with is that the, the moons orbit Uranus on its equatorial plane. So like the planet itself and like its rings, the moons are tilted at a roughly 90 degree angle to the rest of the solar system. In general, the moons of Uranus are made of ice and rock, uh, usually slightly more ice than rock, and they show some interesting surface features like patterns of darkening on their surfaces that are caused uh, by some unknown material. Spectral analysis reveals the presence of fro frozen carbon dioxide on a lot of the moons. Uh, meanwhile, the origin of the rings, the consensus seems to be that they are created by the shattering into dust and fragments of formerly solid moons. And as we've seen with other planets, the, the sudden or gradual smash up of moons can happen a number of ways uh, by, you know, uh, lots of little collisions with meteoroids or other objects or by tidal breakup due to gravity. In any case, turning former larger satellites into smaller satellites and rings of little fragments. Yeah, it's it's fascinating how, from our human perspective, we we look up at our moon. We consider the moons of other worlds, and there's a certain certain stability to them, you know. Um, but if you look at at, at any planet's uh, moons or moon, um, generally you're looking at a more violent uh, relationship over the the, the vast uh, history of a given planet. There's nothing peaceful about it. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. 
A-S-T-E-P-R-O, allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, let's begin, at least begin, to dip into the moons of Uranus um, like I said, we, we originally set out to do them all. Maybe we won't do them all. Maybe we'll we'll get part way through the journey and we'll come back on Tuesday. Um, who knows? Maybe we'll just we'll just get into uh, we'll finish them up and then we'll go right into Neptune. Uh, there are no rules. We can we can do what we want. Uh, so let's start with the inner moons of Uranus. Thirteen total known. All right, we're going to start with a pair of moons, Cordelia and Ophelia. Um, These are named for the youngest daughter of King Lear and, of course, Hamlet's tragic beloved, uh, respectively. Uh, The main significance of these moons is that both Cordelia and Ophelia are shepherd moons as their gravity keeps Uranus's epsilon ring from dispersing. Now, I thought this was interesting, so I was looking up how exactly it is that shepherd moons work. What does the shepherd moon do, these little uh, small moons? How how do they keep a a ring uh, essentially they keep a ring in tight formation around the planet and clear these gaps between the rings Hmm. and it seems that essentially it works like this so you've got a small moon and it's orbiting the planet and imagine at first it's orbiting the planet along with a bunch of other uh, uh small particles sort of within the lane of that small moon's orbit particles that are ahead of the small moon uh, will be attracted by gravity to it, meaning if they're orbiting ahead of it, they will naturally want to slow down in their orbit, right? Because they're getting pulled toward this moon. 
but slowing down in their orbit actually causes them to lose energy and fall down closer to the planet that they're orbiting. Mm. So these like dust and particles and things in the ring actually end up uh, sorting down into lower orbit rings. And then meanwhile, things that are orbiting along the same lane as this moon that are behind it in its orbit are attracted to it and thus sped up. And as they get sped up trying to chase after this uh, moon by the force of gravity, that acceleration actually causes them to have greater energy and to ascend in their orbit and end up going into outer rings beyond that little moon. So again, we have the shepherd moons here. Uh, they were discovered by Voyager 2 in 1986. Uh, like uh, the rest of Uranus's inner moons, they appear to be roughly equal split of water, ice, and rock. They're small. Uh, of note, uh, Cordelia is the closest to the planet. And uh, I guess we should also uh, point out or come back to the fact that, uh, yes, these are both Shakespearean references. There are going to be a lot of Shakespeare references as we go through the moons of Uranus. Um, and these are just the first two. It seems that a lot of the, the names of these satellites, for some reason, were chosen either from the works of Shakespeare or from the works of uh, Alexander Pope. Yeah, predominantly Shakespearean, but, but definitely there are some key Alexander Pope references as well. So as, as we go through it, we're going to probably talk a little bit about uh, some of the, um, the, the namesakes here. Well, this was something I was wondering. I, I don't know about the origin exactly, like what people had in mind when they were naming these uh, but so I think like, is there some significance to the innermost, uh, minor moon here being called Cordelia? Because Cordelia is a very poignant character. Uh, Cordelia is the youngest daughter of King Lear in the play King Lear. If you don't know the play or need refreshing, the very beginning of it, the first scene is, uh, King Lear is this old king. He comes out, he decides that he will divide up his kingdom between his three daughters, Goneril, Regan, and Cordelia. And he's going to give the largest portion to the daughter that loves him most. So Goneril and Regan uh, give these speeches where they overwhelm their father with absurd, insincere flattery about how much they love him. And then when it's Cordelia's time to speak, she finds that she cannot put into words. She cannot express her love for her father. Uh, to herself, she says that she knows her love is richer than her tongue. And then when it's her time to speak, she says, unhappy that I am, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your majesty according to my bond, no more nor less. And uh, I think he gives her a chance to amend her statement. <laughs> she doesn't really. And then uh, so Lear gets furious at this, decides to disinherit her. He gives nothing to Cordelia, splits his kingdom between the other two daughters, uh, Goneril and Regan, who secretly think he is a fool and they will go on to betray him uh, once they come to power. And of course, it's a tragedy. So things just get worse and worse. Basically, everybody ends up dead. Uh, but, you know, it's a very meaningful character and something I think I don't know that 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 moment in the first scene is something that always got me something I can really relate to, like the feeling of um, worrying that you you don't express positive feelings because you're afraid that you can't phrase them in the sincerest way, like you don't know how to put them to words. So then you worry that like you're perceived as as not wanting to say a positive thing at all. I, I don't know if that makes sense. No, 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 no. I mean, certainly with the example um, uh, here from, from the play. Uh, absolutely. 
but she she's the daughter that truly loved him. Uh, she just mm-hmm. did, you know didn't want to uh, give a big insincere speech. It, anyway, it's a very meaningful character. So I'm wondering, is there some simile at play here in the selection of the name for this moon? Maybe not. So like, it's a very small satellite. It's the closest to the planet of these. It is one of the the shepherd moons that that sort of uh, guide guides the epsilon ring and keeps it tight in formation. Uh, by the end, I mean she she does show great discipline because she comes back with an army to try to uh, to fight on her father's side against her uh, cruel, duplicitous sister. Is a, eh, I don't know, maybe not. I, I don't know if it fits, but I was wondering. No, I think it, it's natural to to try and read um, some sort of um, sense into the naming. Though, of course, as we'll discuss, it's, it's it's different people at different times coming up with these names. You know, some are maybe probably a little more. Um, up on the works of William Shakespeare than others. Uh, sometimes there's there seems like something they could be getting at, other times not. And also some of these kind of slip by on a technicality. Uh, so uh, they're kind of all over the place. All right, let's, let's go on to the next one. There's uh, Bianca, named after Kate's sister in The Taming of the Shrew. Uh, this one, there's nothing really else that I think is significant about it, and it was also discovered by Voyager 2. All right, after that, we have Cressida, this is the title character from Troilus and Cressida. Um, again, nothing other uh, else that's really significant about this moon. It was also discovered by Voyager 2. I know some of you are probably wondering, when's Voyager 6 going to show up in all this? But I guess Voyager 6 just shot right out there, right? I was unsure, but wait, you're referring to V'ger here, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Voyager 6 doesn't actually exist, except okay. in the world of Star Trek. Uh, okay. Specifically Star Trek, the motion picture. The most riveting of all of them. <laughs> that was penned by Alan Dean Foster. Oh, wait, was he the one who wrote the novelization of Halloween 3 or something like that? Um, he wrote the novelization of most films, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next uh, moon of note here is Desdemona. This one's named after the wife of Othello. No other real significance, once again, discovered by Voyager 2. All right, now we're moving on to another one. This is Juliet, or Julet, right? Uh, if you're depending on how you're, what line from the play you're using, sometimes you got to hit two syllables instead of three on that. This is, of course, named after the title character from Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Romeo, meanwhile, is nowhere to be found amid the moons of Uranus. Um, it is kind of interesting that there's a, a part in Romeo and, and Juliet where Romeo is squaring his love up and down the universe, and Juliet specifically asks him not to swear by the moon. Mm. So, uh, she says, quote, Oh, swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon, that monthly changes in her circle orb, lest that thy love prove likewise variable. Changes in her circle orb. What does that refer to? Like the uh, like waxing and waning of the moon, or maybe I'm not sure. I know what that means. I mean, I take it to mean yeah, it's like there are different faces of the moon. Like, like if your love is like the moon, Romeo, then I don't. You know, it's like what am I going to get today? I mean, it seems like okay. if, it, if it is like the moon, she could chart it out and then she'd have a really good idea of what she's going to get, <laughs> you know, yeah. phase by phase. But, um, yeah, she's like, I need consistency. Right. Your love should not wax and wane. The, we, we shouldn't have a, a new moon of your love. Yes. It's werewolf night every night. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, aside from these thoughts, uh, Juliet, uh, nothing else that's really significant. Once again, discovered by Voyager 2. Then we have um, uh, Portia. This one is named after the heroine from The Merchant of Venice. Uh, This one, I guess the main significance is that it orbits Uranus in less than one Earth day. 
and it was discovered by Voyager 2. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. In my best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. All right, up next we have Rosalind. Uh, Rosalind is one of the Duke's daughters in As You Like It. Uh, that's the namesake. Uh, nothing else really significant to discuss here. This one was also discovered by Voyager 2. All right, the next one is Cupid. Hmm. <laughs> this, is, uh, this, one, uh, this one is a, is a tough one to, to fit in. But, okay, Cupid is, of course, the Roman god of love. Uh, Character famously Cup- invented by William Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is... Technically, a character in um, uh, in Shakespeare's what is it, Timon, Timon of Athens? I'm not familiar with this play. I don't know anything about that but one. This may be one of the more obscure ones. Uh, I don't remember studying this one in school. Um, 
But uh, the, the, dis- the discovery of it is kind of interesting because it was discovered by M.R. Showalter and J.J. Uh, Lissauer using the Hubble Space Telescope in 2003. Uh, it was too small and too dark for Voyager 2 to spot. And I was thinking about this. It's tempting to try and spin this one out and think of like, okay, here we have Cupid as this dark, near-invisible shadow presence, you know, reminding us of uh, of past discussions about how Cupid was sometimes said to shoot lead in arrows. Mm. So, it's you know, he's not only dealing out love with his projectiles, but also uh, some of the ramifications of love and maybe even the tragic ramifications of love. but um, uh, again, this one, this one seems to sort of slip by on a, uh, on a technicality in terms of its naming. All right, the next one is Belinda. And th- this is one where we have to just have to ask Shakespeare to move over because this one is named after the character whose lock of hair is stolen in Alexander Pope's Rape of the Lock. Now, this is an unfortunately titled poem because uh, it doesn't mean what it sounds like. The, the poem by Pope is an older definition of the word rape, which is basically in this context, it means like theft or, uh, or snatching. Uh, so the poem is a mock heroic satire. It narrates like a social scandal in which a lord of some sort, uh, I did read this in school, I forget a lot of the details, but he like steals a lock of hair from a young woman uh, but it's written like in the style of the Iliad to be mocking of the like, oh, ho, ho, this is actually insignificant. I think Pope's point is best summarized in one of its lines uh, where he says, uh, what mighty contests rise from trivial things. Though, I don't know, it, it, thinking back on it now, there are obviously much worse crimes, but stealing somebody's hair is pretty weird. Yeah, and plus hair has magical connotations. They could be stealing it to work some sort of magic. Maybe that's <laughs> explored in the poem. I don't know. I uh, I, I have a degree in English, and I somehow managed to never read this poem. I remember that, you know, of course, I'm familiar with the, with the author's name and his popularity and importance in, in English literature. But um, I, I remember the this title would come up, and I would think, oh, that, that doesn't sound like something I want to read, not realizing that it's about hair theft. Uh, Alexander Pope, everything I recall that he wrote is, is basically satirical in nature. I, I'm sure he must have written uh, serious poems, but, like, the other main thing I remember— he wrote something called the the Dunciad, which is a sort of an uh, epic poem about stupidity. Mm. He was like, it seems like he was just really into not suffering fools. Though I feel like if that's your main vibe, you really open yourself up to to, to scrutiny, don't you? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll come back to Pope's work in a bit because there are more moons named uh, after him. Uh, the next one is Perdita, and this is the daughter of uh, Leontes and Hermione in William Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. Um, This one's discovery is actually pretty interesting because Voyager 2 is involved in its discovery, but it wasn't recognized till 2003. Basically, University of Arizona's um, Eric uh, Karkoschka discovered it by comparing uh, Voyager 2 imagery with Hubble imagery and sort of working out its existence based on these two different streams. Hmm. All right, up next we have Puck. Puck is, of course, named after the sprite from A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, Stanley Tucci played him in the 1999 film adaptation, which had a great cast. I, I do remember seeing this film when it came out. And I imagine I've seen multiple. Uh, it seems like Midsummer Night's Dream is just one of those plays that if you're just going to fall into seeing it, even if you don't set out to watch Shakespeare in life. Puck's a great character, great mischief maker. The mm-hmm. mischief maker who brings wisdom, whether uh, on purpose or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tucci was was perfect casting. 
Now, significance here is that it's the smallest of the inner moons with a diameter of about 150 kilometers or about 90 miles. And it was, guess what, discovered by Voyager 2. All right, up next we have Mab. Uh, it's named after Queen Mab, queen of the fair folk in English folklore. She's mentioned in Romeo and Juliet, so and, and just mentioned. So it just really, really squeaks by uh, on a technicality. I mean, it, uh, this is one of those situations where I feel like I want to shout a little bit and be like, look, there are a lot of names that are mentioned in Shakespeare, and there are plenty of characters. I don't know why Queen Mab uh, seems like the, the, uh, the ideal choice here. Is there an inner moon named Julius Caesar? <laughs> <laughs> no. But, you know, you could, that would have been a good one, Caesar, right? Uh, but uh, that's just off the top of my head. I'm not sure if there's some other, uh, there's some, well, you know, I should also point out when you start looking, and I didn't get into this in any of my note taking, really, but there are individual features on some moons that are likewise named after other things. So it could be a Caesar in there somewhere. Um, you know what? Actually, I want to be fair. Even a lot of the Shakespeare characters that we think of as more original Shakespeare characters are actually often from like adapted versions of pre-existing tales. Like a lot of Shakespeare's mm -hmm. plays were not wholly made up stories. They were based right. on something from history or from an older story or another play or something. Right, right. Like uh, who would have thought that, you know, Hamlet is the guy from the Northman. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you were around today, he'd be, uh, you know, he'd be in the MCU somewhere working on uh, a project. Um, but, but anyway, um, Mab is the, the moon here. This one was discovered in 2003 by Showalter and Lissauer using the Hubble Space Telescope. Interesting fact I came across while reading that article by the, uh, the NASA Goddard researcher Amy Simon. She writes that Mab, quote, may be generating a tenuous blue-toned ring like Enceladus does for Saturn's E-ring, though the source currently remains a mystery. Mm, well, you know, that sounds kind of fitting for the queen of the fairy folk, so I, I do like that. Well, I'm looking at the clock, and do you know what the clock reads? It reads a promise broken, because we said <laughs> we were going to do all of the the moons within part two, and I think we have failed because we're we're coming up against a time limit. We got to cap it here, and we've got all of the major moons left to talk about. So I think that's going to have to be part three of our series on Uranus and its satellites. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we didn't mess anybody up there, but um, I think I think the journey will be better for breaking into three parts here. So, and there's going to be a lot of fun stuff to talk about, especially with the major moons of Uranus and then yeah, getting also into just some of the, the additional Shakespearean references uh, in the naming of these moons. In the meantime, uh, if you would like to catch up on past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, including our past uh, episodes dealing with the moons of, of uh, Jupiter and Saturn and Mars and so forth, uh, you'll find those in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you'll find wherever you get your podcasts. We have core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind airing there on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we open up the mailbag on our Lister Mail episodes. Uh, that's primarily where we, we read emails from people. Occasionally, we'll read one in an episode, uh, as in today's episode, uh, you know, if it relates to the subject matter. But generally, it's going to be in the Monday episodes. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. Uh, this week, of course, it ties into our theme of Uranus. Uh, so go check that out uh, if you haven't. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Uh, our selection for this week does not have anything to do with the planet Uranus, uh, but, it, but it's still a lot of fun. 
by God, we'll find a way to tie it in by the time Friday comes around. <laughs> anyway, uh, huge thanks, as always, to our uh, audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.